Scott Everly, welcome to the new school. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. You are an end-of-life specialist and medical director of Hospice of Petaluma in Petaluma, California. And on the back of your wonderful book, The Final Crossing, Learning to Die in Order to Live, your bio says, having learned the science of medicine at the University of California at San Francisco Medical School, you went on to learn the art of medicine from countless people living and dying with AIDS in the 1980s and 1990s, and that you survived this difficult time by regularly seeking sanctuary, either in monasteries or the natural world. After completing over 150 retreats, you felt called on to blend solitary reflection in nature with the building of community, and that is how you became, briefly, a wilderness guide at the School of Lost Borders, where you serve as co-director of the practice of living and dying. That's a fairly good summary. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So let's start with your extraordinary book, The, the Final Crossing. And, uh, this, tell us about the book. What is, what, is, what is it about? Well, the book, um, it tells the story, first and foremost, of being at the bedside with quite a remarkable man, Stephen Foster, who died back in 2003. Um, Stephen and his uh, wife of, I think, about 30 years, Meredith Little, were the pioneers for helping bring uh, wilderness rites of passage um, drawn from indigenous um, cultures all over the world, but bringing that back into the modern world and offering it to people um, beginning in about 1975 and actually based in Marin County. Uh, and so what um, they did is drawing on um, pan-cultural sources, poetry, fairy tales, uh, teachings of some Native American teachers, but really drawing from all over the world, tried to find a way to put initially young people, young adults, out in a rite of passage uh, and hold that in a, uh, in a, with a container that really allowed them to push edges but also do it safely and then really claim their own adulthood. And that then eventually morphed into offering rites of passage programs to people at any stage of transition in life. Um, and that was the beginnings of the School of Lost Borders. Um, so Stephen had a, a, a genetic lung disease, um, which when I first met him um, was nearing probably the last couple of years of his life, and I met him only briefly at that point, and then more significantly was asked to become his physician when he and Meredith relocated back to the Bay Area to be near sea level, um, as his doctor had told him he'd have more, uh, more time to live if he did that. Um, as it turns out, I became his doctor about four months before he died, and in the course of the last months of his life, made five home visits. In the book, it's fictionalized into four because of a structural reason of how the book took shape. Um, but true, true to the um, real experience of being at the bedside, the, the, the chapters in there that tell the story of home visits with Stephen are about as non-fictional uh, writing as I can do. And then woven with that very intimate bedside tale is the bigger tale of how our two worlds, rites of passage for 30 years for Stephen and Meredith, and the hospice world, which I've done for at that time for about 20 years, but the, at the time the hospice movement was about 30 years old as well, um, how those two different uh, cultures, worlds, um, interweave and intersect in the voices of Stephen and Meredith and myself in this um, personal encounter. Now, in the book, um part of the structure of it, and it's very beautiful, uh, is that you use a, a language or a metaphor or a mythology, really, 
uh, from Native American culture of four stages, uh, decision road, death lodge, purpose circle, and the great ball court. How would you describe those four stages in the dying process? Well, first to say the teaching comes originally from the Mayan culture, the ball court culture that you find in Mesoamerica, and, but gravitated as far north as the um, Midwest Plains, um, much further than where the ball courts are actually found. Um, and the teaching was passed to Stephen and Meredith by Hyamos Storm, who was a Native American uh, teacher, most well known for his book Seven Arrows. Um, a Northern out. Cheyenne. Yeah, Northern Cheyenne oh, yeah. teacher, exactly. Um, and the teaching as it was handed to Stephen and Meredith was specifically a teaching for people preparing for their physical death, but can easily be uh, extended to how you prepare for any symbolic death, the, the little deaths of life. Um, again, the, the classic example being the dying to being an adolescent and stepping into adulthood. Um, so the teaching goes that in order to die to what was and to step into the new phase or, and or transition out of this physical life, uh, four steps, um, beginning with decision road. Uh, decision road is essentially saying or really behaving as consciously as possible, saying, I'm going to put my feet on a decision road that I know ultimately leads to my death. Um, again, physical or symbolic. And then the teaching says that decision road leads uh, naturally to the death lodge. Second step. Uh, the death lodge is a metaphor, um, perhaps a real true lodge of sorts in the, the Cheyenne people's uh, lives and previous generations. Um, but in, in this context, a metaphor for completing relationships for uh, a person arriving to a lodge, perhaps, and the uh, community, friends, uh, uh, loved ones, or maybe even some people where there's some leftover uh, rancor or unfinished business, recognizing that it's now time to complete that relationship uh, and say goodbye or wrap up um, the relational part of that person's life. I could say a lot more about the death lodge. It's, in some ways, it's the most powerful and poignant of the four steps. But continuing on, the um, the teaching goes that once you've done that relational work and closed out those relationships in your life, you move on to the purpose circle, also called the circle of self. And this is a place of making peace with, um, uh, becoming current with your, uh, your relationship with yourself. And for a religious person or a person with a spiritual life, that might also be seen as um, your relationship with God or spirit or a higher power. Um, and again, lots more to say about what the purpose circle looks like, both for physically dying people and earlier in life as well. And then, uh, having done both the work with others as well as oneself, the teaching uh, says you arrive at the great ball court, which again is more of a metaphor for the actual transition time, the final crossing uh, the book is um, titled, um, is an example of the ball court where you transition from this life, or the life that's ending, or the phase of life that's ending, step in between worlds. In between worlds, in some ways, is a more easily understood phrase than the great ball court. But you step in between worlds, not yet in the new life, not yet having died to what was and or stepping into what will be. Uh, so it's the, it's the crossing. It's the movement. So in a, in a symbolic rite of passage, it's the transition between dying to what the old story and then moving into the new story that's waiting for you, the new identity, the new relationship, the new work, whatever that might be. Rob Ferraro, you are uh, kind enough to 
introduce us to Scott um, and um, say a little about the circumstance that brought you to one of Scott's programs. In, uh, I attended the 10-day uh, experience, I can't call it a workshop or a class really, uh, with Scott and with Meredith in Death Valley in March of 2008. And what had led me there was really threefold. Um, my own personal experiences with metastatic kidney cancer and the three surgeries I'd undergone um, prior to that time um, brought up my awareness of living and dying and really felt the need to use the, the opportunity in the desert to confront some of the tougher issues around it. But combined with that was my father was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer not too long before uh, the desert experience. And perhaps most significantly, I had attended the final days and the, the actual passing of a dear friend of mine who died of ALS in January of 2008. And the confluence of those three things made me feel like it was time to uh, live into the reality that um, I was on Decision Road, whether I liked it or not. And you spoke uh, earlier in suggesting that uh, we get together with Scott of how powerful this was for you. Oh. What, what was the impact on you of participating? Well, it, it, it worked on many levels. There was the most obvious level of being in Death Valley and the starkness of that. There was the experience of being with others who were involved in the same thing. But the most powerful reality was the container that Scott and Meredith created through their, the structure that they had to allow us to really live into, to be as if this was the end. And um, it was palpable for me to, it was not hard to, to live into that this was the end, that I was going out to Death Valley to die. And even though I understood it was a symbolic death, it sure didn't feel like it in the, in the experience. It felt like, um, felt like the real thing. What has been, if any, the lasting consequence of having gone through that? On a lot of levels, living and dying we do every day and so all of the lessons that I learned are still with me each day the lesson of understanding that I'm on decision road towards moving towards death to understand that um, I need I want to keep my relationships current and understand that if death took me on the way home from Commonweal today that my relationships are as up-to-date, that I've said what I need to say to all the significant people. Um, in, in Scott's book, he talks about uh, the five things, you know, I forgive you, do you forgive me, thank you, I love you, goodbye. And those were the watchwords that are with me. And the larger question uh, and the purpose circle of, you know, what, how have I lived my life? Uh, have I lived it as I would have wanted to live it when looking back upon it at the end, that's perhaps the most challenging because I think we all fall short to some degree of what we 
know we could do if we put our minds to it. So it's it's all of those it's all of those things. Mm-hmm. Susan Braun, as, as Commonweal's executive director and the person who brought the end of life work to Commonweal, uh, as you listen to Scott and listen to Rob, what thoughts or reflections do you have? Especially in the conversation about well, the whole path, the the four components of this path, the way that the experience feels so real. I think there is nothing like that. Like, we can read about something, we can talk about something, but actually being there, whether it's truly happening to you or you are deeply enacting it in a way that feels real, is a very different thing than what we can learn in our minds. So I feel that since death has been closeted as much as it has been in our society, at least for the past many decades, probably century, um, we haven't had that real live experience very often. Most of us haven't. And certainly most of us don't have the experience of our death, our literal death from this physical body until it happens. But what this is, is is an important, I don't even want to use the word surrogate, um, because what you're saying is much more powerful than that. You are there. You are living this experience of dying. And I think that is an entirely different way for us to become aware of what death is and means and how powerful and, and I think potentially healing a force that can be in our own living. So that, that's what comes to me initially in, in hearing you both talk. Scott, you've, you've done this work for a long time. Um, how has this work changed you since you began hospice and AIDS work? Well, in a fashion very similar to, to Rob's words, um, I've, uh, perhaps the most important lesson I've learned is I don't want to wait for my own dying mm-hmm. to have my act together. And my act means my relationships with the people that I love most, being current, as, as Rob was saying, um, not having to do the I forgive yous, please forgive me, um, but stay in a place of love and gratitude. Um, as much as I can day-to-day with the people that matter most. And then uh, in that realm of the purpose circle, um, really staying clear about what am I supposed to be doing with this life? Uh, you know, the, fa- the very famous Mary Oliver poem, um, one, precious and wild, one Wild and Precious Life. And I mm-hmm. want to be as present for that and living it in the way that I want to. And so, you know, all my greatest teachers uh, over all these many years of doing the work have been people truly transitioning, crossing over the threshold at um, whatever death may be. Uh, and they've helped me then go ahead and say, well, may that not be for some time, but right now, what if I were, again, as Rob said, um, driving home after this uh, afternoon at Commonweal? What if? Um, so I try to, try to make my life as present and current uh, as I possibly can. And based on your experience and your intuitions, and we all know that there are many different accounts of it, but what's your best guess about what death is? Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, um, it's one of the things that Meredith and I will often say to a group, particularly with the program that, that Rob was part of, is um, say we have a group of 12 people. It's a pretty typical size. In this group of 12 people, there are 12 
different stories about what death means and what matters most as we create the container for you in this week or what matters most when I go to someone's bedside isn't my story. It's the story of the individual person who's going through their own personal journey, be it in the desert or at the deathbed. So it's really important for me to say, I don't know. I'm really fascinated by and really hold it as a great mystery, but I wouldn't pretend to put words or projections, um, partly because I think I'd be, be of a, uh, a disservice to the people that I'm asked to help, but also because, truth be told, I don't know. And in your work as uh, uh, medical director of Hospice of Petaluma, um, that's very different from the work that you do at the School of Lost Borders at a certain level. It's mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Um, how, what are your observations in just the reality of death and dying with hundreds of um, people on the Northern California coast? Um, how do you sort of see those experiences in relationship to the experiences that you see in the School of Lost Borders where people have consciously chosen to come to work with death and dying issues? Well, uh, first thought that comes to mind is I was asked once when I was doing an in-service, it was actually at San Francisco Zen Hospice, where you have all these volunteers wanting to have really present conscious conversations with people at the end of life and I was asked, well, so in your experience, how often are people that present? And the truth is, is I 10, 20 percent of the time, you know, you know, without trying to cast aspersions on people doing it their own way, a lot of people are going to the, the final days and weeks and months of their life not really wanting to take on too directly. Um, and it's always this incredible honor and privilege to be called to the bedside of someone like Stephen Foster, who are really, truly showing up. Um, when I go out to the desert, the great miracle there is that pretty much everyone coming, by definition, is wanting to step on a decision road and be conscious. And Rob actually referred to the, the aspect of the, the, the experience where other people doing the same work becomes a catalyst. And there's this really profound group story that ends up unfolding in the desert where you get... 10, 15 really conscious people telling their stories and how much they feed each other. Um, so um, the, it, when it comes down to the actual work, and yes, they're very different. I mean, obviously, one, I'm out in the desert, and I'm with people who are relatively um, well off physically and have perhaps years, if not decades, to live, as opposed to people who are really truly at death's door. Um, but the kinds of questions and the kind of storytelling that I invite and, and love to be part of are really very similar. Um, it's, you know, it's asking the big questions about relationship to self, relationship to others, relationships to God, meaning, purpose, all of those kinds of things. And how do you bring this into the culture of Hospice of Petaluma? How do you train your staff and volunteers um, in a language that works for them? Do you use... Do you use the metaphor and language of this book, The Final Crossing, or do you, uh, do you have another language that is the language of training and shared dialogue? Well, it depends on the setting. If I'm, when I'm doing volunteer trainings, and I do that twice a year, I absolutely use the language and, uh, and develop much of the conversation we're having now is similar to what I'll speak to in the group and try to elicit out of them as well. Um, I also, in the volunteer training, I'm really clear that if I'm usually given two and a half, three hours with a group, and I want half that time spent with me not talking and them telling stories. 
So I'll give the, the map and the language and then try to create a uh, situation where I um, encourage them to do the storytelling. And that's sort of um, core to the way I do any other work I do, which is not to try to teach through a lot of words, but rather through relational presence, listening, really being, really showing up. Um, now, if I go, when I go to the bedside, I could probably count on two or three fingers the number of times I've used these words. Um, I use the map all the time. It guides the questions that I ask. Um, the one most uh, wonderful exception to the rule was very recently I was um, uh, called to about four or five visits with a remarkable woman who I, whose name I won't mention, but a medical anthropologist coming to the end of her life and truly awake and conscious in the, fr in the first order. Um, and for the only time in my entire career, and this book's been out for four or five years, I, on the second visit I gave her a copy of the book because she was the kind of person who was so clearly wanting to just absorb the information. And it became a wonderful catalyst for incredible uh, dialogues that we had with her. But I mentioned that really as the exception, because I just, again, I'm more about the relational presence and encouraging, um, in this case, the person who's uh, got a limited time, really trying to get them to tell their story, not me tell mine. I find people with authentic relational presence to be extraordinarily useful uh, in, at the end of life. But, but let me ask you a question. I have run across very good people who are drawn to this work, um, but how can I say this? They are practicing their relational presence skills in order to, both for personal development and to develop a concept of themselves that they are attached to. And when I imagine having somebody like that at my bedside if I were dying, there's, there are a few people who I would rather not have <laughs> at my bedside. It's, there's a kind of a, a level of spiritual pretentiousness or something that I find just, I want to run. You Understood. Know? And I want to ask you about that because it seems to me, and I mean, I've, I feel these people are genuine good people who are really working on themselves and so on and so forth. But their purpose somehow of being at the bedside is, is about their own, you know, evolution, not really to be truly authentically present to the person. Yeah. Do you run into that? And if you run into it, what do you do with it? Well, uh, um, you know, I, I think we all carry our egos into the, the work we do to whatever degree. Um, and certainly a big part of my life story in these last oh, five, eight years is um, deepening my uh, Buddhist practice. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm a, I go to Spirit Rock often. Um, and a very important part for me to look at is, um, so where, where, where is the ego getting in the way of, in this case, service, service of others? Um, when that appears... In, our, in the group of people at my hospice. You know, I, I, if, I think more than anything, I want to just be honest and, and, and call people on their stuff and hopefully be called on mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't pretend to, to be as uh, clean and clear as I'd like to be. Mm -hmm. um, but again, a, a real fundamental, something I've said to countless volunteer groups and the groups in the desert is um, check your story at the door. Leave your own spiritual tales at the door when you walk in to be with someone who's dying. Um, and that's the ultimate test is how well have you done that? It's, you know, I mentioned the story of giving this book to, to um, the woman, the medical anthropologist, as the exception. 
because, um, you know, in fact, I actually, um, I talked a lot um, with my partner before going on the second visit saying, I, you know, I don't know if this is the right thing. Um, anyway, and I'm pretty comfortable saying now it was. Um, but way more often than not, don't bring your own story. The last conversation we had at the New School with Mike Whitty, who you know, the medical director of Coastal Health Alliance, and Susan, and part of the conversation was really about how broken the American way of death is, and not only from an emotional and spiritual perspective, not only from a physical perspective, but also from a financial perspective. That, mm -hmm. What is it, something like half of the medical costs are in the last six months of life? Yes, when you look at Medicare spending in particular, um, a huge portion of the Medicare dollar is spent in the last six months of life, and something like 80% of people are hospitalized during that time who are yeah. on Medicare. And we pursue active treatment very often. Again, large numbers of people receive major treatment of some kind, particularly people with cancer but also with heart disease, um, days uh, before their death. And those studies have been done again and again. And it makes me wonder about the values that go into that and also the consciousness with which we make or unconsciously do not make decisions about how we'd like the end of life to be from that medical treatment perspective, and of course that then reflects into the economics overall. Individual economics, which we talked about, people get bankrupted, families get bankrupted, and also the system economics where we're, we're putting Medicare to bed with this. What do you think about that, Scott? Well, um, there's certainly uh, you know, plenty of wonderful examples of life um, possibly life-transforming, miraculous interventions being made that don't mm -hmm. quite go right, and then someone dies days later. Um, and so I want to first say that it isn't always money poorly spent. It right. was money spent in a good way that d didn't work, mm -hmm. but very, very well may have. And mm -hmm. say, even if it's only half of the people getting that treatment would have lived and possibly lived for years longer, then that's probably well spent. My concern is, are we really having the conversations to really ask if that's the appropriate right. treatment? Um, one of the ways in which I talk about Decision Road is, are we actually um, supporting patients and families to be conscious and really making um, appropriate choices about the potentially miraculous or potentially um, expensive and suffering-inducing and ultimately not uh, very helpful kinds of interventions that are often spent in those final days, weeks, months. So for me, the cornerstone uh, issue is, are we having the difficult conversation? Mm -hmm. uh, and that means not only physician and patient, but also patient with themselves, physician w with mm -hmm. his or herself, families amongst themselves. Are we really asking the important questions of values? Mm -hmm. um, actually, a little side story. My dog died about um, three months ago. Devastating, big, huge, wonderful, horrible story. Um, and I got to be firsthand on the... Um, as her um, surrogate decision maker, firsthand on the side of, but hold it, doctor, why are you doing that? What are you proposing to do? And, and is that really in the best interest of this 13-year-old dog? And I, um, it was a fascinating experience where one day in particular of a three, four-month-long story in which I was on the phone for probably three hours with four different vets 
really helping them to help me make the right decision. And they didn't, you know, with, they were wonderful people and they were all in their own way, but not willing and able to have the kind of conversation that needed to happen to really decide what was best for this animal. And ultimately we did, I think, absolutely what was best for her, but it took a lot of um, pushing and also receiving at the same time. One of the things that's come up recently at Commonweal in the evening we do on death and dying in the cancer help program is um, the questions about when you look for palliative care and when you look for hospice care and the relationship of those two. Mm -hmm. And the specific instance, um, and please correct this if it's wrong, but it seemed to me sufficiently important that I want to get it right. Um, the, as I understand it, the way hospice reimbursement works is that hospice gets a certain fixed dollar amount per day for taking care of a patient. That's right. And therefore, if it turns out at a certain point in the course of that that, say, palliative radiation would be helpful, that is supposed to come out of that rather modest fixed amount. That's right. Which is really you can't do very often uh, because it would bankrupt the system. That's right. Whereas palliative care, as I understand, is still reimbursed in the regular way mm -hmm. on either Medicare or somebody's insurance or whatever. Right. So what that suggests to me is, um, first of all, that I didn't understand that before, and probably most people don't. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question then becomes, uh, if you are nearing the end, but palliative support might be useful, how do you make a wise decision, both the physician and the patient or family, about whether to look for palliative care or whether to enter hospice? Well, first um, to say that palliative care is always um, an appropriate and valued part of anyone's care long before and up till when they make that choice to, um, to, to seek hospice. Palliative care is meaning specifically that you're willing to palliate symptoms, right. treat, treat symptoms, and I would also add have the difficult conversations. Right. And that's a value at every stage of a life-threatening illness, even if someone ultimately is cured. Um, the reimbursement scheme in this country for palliative care of that kind is just the same as it is for anyone receiving aggressive therapies, um, which is to say you get pretty much open door with some, uh, obviously, exceptions more and more these days, but basically open door policy around technology, clinics, and hospitals. And what you don't get is people coming to your home. You don't get a lot of people time, whether it's in your home or, uh, frankly, even in the clinics. That's not what gets reimbursed. Um, and keeps a clinic open. Um, so something like uh, palliative radiation for someone who's got bone metastases, for example, classic situation, uh, in the palliative care model, great. It's going to be paid for. Um, it's a win-win-win situation for doctor, clinic, patient, maybe not for the healthcare system because it's going to cost money, but still money hopefully well spent. Whereas um, in that, in that uh, time frame, you're not going to be getting again, a lot of uh, in-person care. And certainly you won't be getting any home visits practically. Uh, whereas if you elect the hospice Medicare benefit, then what you're saying is I don't get free access or relatively open access to a lot of the technology. What I get instead is people coming to my home, physician, nurse, social worker, chaplain, home health aide, um, potentially volunteers. Um, and that's where I want my health care dollars to be spent. 
Um, the example you offer is a, cl a classic, doesn't happen too often, but a classic example in which the, the two models sort of get at cross purposes with each other, where you've got someone who is no longer receiving aggressive therapies to um, uh, slow disease progression and hopefully increase life ex expectation. Um, and yet, they go on hospice, and because symptoms are difficult to manage, in this case, the bone metastases, again, the classic example, um, that they then become a candidate potentially for radiation therapy. And so in our hospice, we have to make very careful decisions about, um, frankly, are we going to lose thousands of dollars in that particular situation? And um, we do it about once or twice a year, um, counting on the fact that we fundraise dollars from the community to make that option possible. Um, but realistically, if we took on um, a lot of people uh, who hadn't really finished their chemo, hadn't really finished the, their radiation therapies, you know, we'd have to shut our doors in a matter of you know months, probably. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a it's an odd situation, and it's um, one of the models that's sort of out there in um, a lot of people's minds, and uh, perhaps not the minds where they really need to be held. Is this notion that maybe we should uh, simply do the the typical model of paying for appropriate technologies? Um, as long as they're appropriate, while separating out, um, is someone really appropriate for hospice care, uh, in-home, people-oriented kind of support, and not saying either or, but saying parallel track. And haven't we heard, I believe we've heard that there are some places that are trying to integrate the palliative and hospice care. Yeah, there, there's actually, there's some um, pilot projects that are um, going on, and in particular, there's a big movement to have this be standard of care for all children with life-threatening illness, mm -hmm. because the situation with children is almost impossible to get hospice care involved uh, until maybe even the final days, and in some cases, um, families aren't even ready to, to give up hope um, in those final um, days or weeks. And so you lose very often uh, the expertise and benefit of getting hospice uh, people out into the homes of children. So we're actually just now uh, about to step into a program where um, uh, in a slightly different de definition, of, it's not the classic hospice model, but we're going to be able to bring our team into the care of uh, children with, with life-threatening illness not just in the last six months of life, but in the last, or in whatever phase um, that their life-threatening illness is at. Scott, what's happening to hospice care in America? A mutual friend of ours um, uh, said to me recently that she feels that while the technical dimension of hospice care, people are trying their best within the reimbursement structure to deliver it, that somehow the spiritual dimension of hospice care is getting squeezed out in a lot of places. Is that your experience or not? Um, well, the um, as with everything in uh, healthcare these days, uh, the Medicare regulations grow and the restrictions um, grow, and with that, the 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 pressure to do uh, work in a fast-paced kind of way grows as well. And that's uh, going to be the death knell of a spiritual practice in any phase of healthcare. But it's perhaps most devastating in hospice, where to have a hospice model that doesn't have a, a real heart, a real spirit to it, is to, to say you don't have hospice. And yet, the, pressure, the financial pressures of a nurse's or social worker's day in this day and age are becoming more and more um, problematic to helping um, that work happen in a good way. I, I, you know, without trying to toot hospice of Petaluma's horn, we, we're blessed by having ha the same executive directors, same medical directors, one of the head nurses, uh, multiple staff who've been there for 20, 30 years. 
And so we have this sort of ballast of the old community model of how this was meant to be done um, back in the early days of truly spirit and heart being what we lead with. And so within the confines and, and conflicts of uh, living out the Medicare regulations, um, our agency, I think, still keeps the heart and soul as alive as any place does in this day and age. But um, it's becoming more and more corporate hospice out there. Uh, and corporate hospice is not the same as the old community model. Susan, any thoughts? No, I just think about right when you said about corporate hospice and how corporate medicine really, in general, has changed the face of healthcare in our country. Mm-hmm. And to think of that entering hospice just feels that, well, it's anathema to what you're trying to do. And I wonder if that's something that is inevitable or if there are things that we can be thinking about from a policy standpoint, from other ways to help preclude that from happening. Have you thought about it at that level? Is there something we ought to be thinking about at that level to to keep this precious benefit where it is? Well, I, I, I have various talents I bring to my work and my life, and policy, policy making is not one of them. <laughs> uh, it may be why you're so good at what you do. Well, perhaps. <laughs> um, because you know, th- those are decisions made at a governmental, organizational, legal kind of level, uh, and uh, how to translate all of those kinds of rules and regulations into um, what happens at the bedside? Mm-hmm. I don't have a clue how you go from one um, way of thinking to another way of thinking. What I do um, uh, uh, believe strongly is that there's a across the board, corporate hospice, community model hospice, doesn't matter. There's countless people in this country doing the work, wanting to keep the heart and soul mm-hmm. alive. And so I don't know that the ultimate answers are going to come from policymakers although certainly the, they're going to put up more and more roadblocks, potentially. Um, but really, how do we at the bedside, how do we in the day-to-day not lose ourselves in the madness of, of hamster medicine? Uh, because you can't be running in a mill and do this work in the way it's meant to be done. Um, you know, another piece of this, so on the other end of the spectrum, if you will, from the policy piece, is the volunteers that you were talking about yeah. training. Yeah. And as with many older systems of care in this country and around the world, volunteers can play a key role in allowing you within the economic model and system that we have to be viable and might be part of the uh, key to the retention of heart and meaning. It, does that is that part of your experience as well? Um, absolutely, and and one of the things I love about our hospice is that we have a, a fully developed. Our, our volunteer coordinator has been there for longer than anyone, including the executive director. <laughs> okay. So we have this old model of really investing in uh, the volunteers that we bring on board because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I've said often is that you create a circuit of love and service by um, uh, the. Um, hospice going out and providing service to the community, then community, the community being inspired to come back and volunteer at the hospice and then mm-hmm. go out and be part of the service that goes out. Um, and that circuit of love and service is absolutely the heartbeat of what hospice is all about. And one of the reasons why I love doing the desert work that I do is that I, I only um, do the hospice work half-time. 
Um, I've got other docs that, um, in fact, they're just bringing on a third doctor uh, who lives in Point Reyes Station nearby, a third doctor to, um, to help uh, carry the work because I don't want to do more than 20 hours a week because I want to be able to cultivate the spirit of uh, the work out in the desert with both myself, perhaps, but also um, for the uh, not only hospice people, but uh, many people like Rob and others who are concerned with this challenge of what do we do at the end of life. So two things happen out in the desert often. One is we get a lot of people from hospice going out there to right. re- reinvigorate their vision, their, their heart, their soul. And we get a lot of people who have nothing to do with hospice who do that program who then want to go and volunteer at a hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and keeping that kind of additional circuit of, go- uh, circuit of love and service going as well. The balance of the two for me is essential. And for me, that's how do each of us create that same, do the work, get paid, you know, support yourself, do what you have to do to, to make this world um, something you can be in, but still retain a big chunk of your energy and time to, in this case, do the desert work of our, our, our lives, which is the spiritual work. Um, how do we create that expansive open space to keep our hearts alive? That's... Mm-hmm. You know, for me, the answer is not going to come from policymakers. It's going to come from individual people saying, it's too important for me to be doing this kind of spiritual work to not let whatever the number of hours are per week that I work get in the way of that foundational mm-hmm. presence. At our hospice, we, um, a full, a full wor- uh, work week is 32 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we consider it absolutely not possible to be doing what we ask people to do if they're working 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would even venture to say that 32 is awfully difficult um, given the, the stress and the intensity of the work. I, I agree. That's, that's the reason we only do six cancer health programs a year here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I you know, we've been doing it for 26 years, and I can't do more than six a year uh-huh. and be really fresh and present for each one, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Um, well, I go out to the desert about six times a year. Yeah. It's, it's, a a, good, it's the same it's rhythm. rhythm. Yeah. yeah. Rob, as you listen to this, any thoughts, reflections? Well, I, I did want to say something about your question about relational listening and the challenges of leaving ego at the door. One of the things that is both the same and different between the Commonweal Cancer Help Program and the School of Lost Borders um, throws a little light, I think, on your question, in that it is, for me, um, not so important what the motivations of the listener are, but, for example, in the desert, can the listener effectively mirror what is being said? Because the experience of being heard is at the core of what Scott and Meredith do in the desert and modeling that is perhaps the most powerful thing that's the takeaway experience. So what I would say that the, the desert experience shows me is that regardless of your motivation, even if it is to see yourself as a helper, if you can leave that behind enough to accurately, compassionately mirror what it is you see in front of yourself, then that's enough. At least it's enough for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And the experience of that in the desert was very powerful. Commonweal's a little different because I got the experience, the feeling of being heard and seen and invited to authenticity, which were in many ways, the core of 
the wonderfulness of the experience at the Cancer Help Program. But I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong about your own perception of it, I don't think that Commonweal and the Cancer Help Program staff see their job as mirroring, but just as listening fully and with compassion. And in, in, in some way, the, the two create the same felt experience, at least they did for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how that answers your question about relational listening, mm-hmm. but, but it, uh, it, it means a lot to me, both mm-hmm. experiences. But. What an interesting comment. I, I hadn't thought about, um, I haven't thought a lot about mirroring. Yeah. Um, um, Scott, what are your thoughts on those two approaches? Well, perhaps it'd be helpful to describe briefly what we do in the desert, Mm -hmm. uh, following through on what Rob's talking Mm -hmm. about. Uh, Whether it's for two or three hours each day, first day, decision road, second day, death lodge, third day, purpose circle, two or three hours out alone, uh, uh, everyone going off separately, uh, no food, um, uh, no distractions of food during that time, and... um, an intention, and in this case, usually to drop into specifically what the theme is for that day. And in the afternoon and evening, people come back with stories about what happened. Do that day after day after day, and then finally send them out for 24 hours, sunrise to sunrise, and come back with a really big story. And then the practice, this is School of Lost Borders for 30 years, the practice is to give people, usually depending on the, you know, the, how big the story is expected to be, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, um, a period of time to tell their story, and if they spill over, they spill over. And then the practices for Meredith and I, sometimes uh, an assistant or two, uh, to then to use that expression to mirror the story back, to actually tell the story back to the, the storyteller, um, usually for a third of the time. Um, and, and the art of mirroring in this practice, and it's, it's so helpful for cultivating what I do in the, at the deathbed uh, setting as well, uh, the practice is first and foremost deep listening, really hearing the story. Because if you're not really hearing the story, no matter how well-spoken you are, it's going to come across as a sham. But so really deeply listening and then uh, telling the story back to them in a way that uh, both makes them feel like they've been really heard, as Rob was talking about, but also cracks open the story. Is there ways in which you can say things like, wow, your gift is, or the great challenge in your life is, or whatever it is that feels like it's really the essence of um, their spiritual story and their spiritual journey as it's been played out in this particular experience. And then the other aspect that then becomes really exciting is with 10, 12, 15 people doing that, they then weave a story that becomes a group story. And so what we often will do is have a group mirror, one of our assistants, who two, three times during the 10 days will offer a mirror to the group story, retell the group's story back to them at really key sort of nodal points of the experience. So then bringing that to the bedside, uh, when I, I don't do formal mirroring in the, the way I've just described it when I do hospice work, but deep listening and then giving back small snippets of a person's story is absolutely what I do all the time. And in fact, after 15, 20 years of doing hospice work, when I first discovered the mirroring practice of the School of Lost Borders, uh, it was an easy and natural fit for me because it's really what I've been doing, but without the formal practice in the way described. Anyway, that's, that's really the, the, the relational heart and soul of, of what we do in the desert. 
You know, one thing that you said that both of you have talked about is the group story and the power of the group. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly something that we experience in the Cancer Help Program as well. And I'm reflecting on the your work at the bedside, which is really a one-on-one. It's an individual experience. Yeah. And I wonder what you've thought about that power of the group and whether or not, and the, the singularity of dying and, and how those can feed one another, how they're similar, how they're different, whether or not there's a power of group that goes into your work at the bedside as well. Well, you know, obviously there's wonderful opportunities for support groups and so forth, but Mm -hmm. more typically for the bereaved or people who are struggling with the anticipatory death of a loved one. And it's much harder. There's just logistical difficulties of getting people who are uh, in the final weeks or months of life into a group setting. And so there's the physical limits that prevent what would Mm -hmm. be, and I think could be, an incredibly huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There was um, uh, some people on the East Coast who I know um, Patty Reeser and Joe Woolley, who wanted to do something very similar to what Meredith and I do, but specifically for people with life-threatening illness. And they were able to put together a program or two, but ultimately couldn't make it um, work because mm-hmm. of the physical challenges. Mm-hmm. Now, Rob is a wonderful example of someone who was healthy enough in the middle of having a truly life-threatening illness, as well as the other stories, a friend with ALS, his father with cancer as well. So he um, came completely activated in the ways that no one is activated unless they're truly staring across death's door whether they go there or not. That kind of, um, there's, no rip, there's no way you can get someone uh, to take on life's big questions any more immediately and powerfully than when it's real like that. Someone like Rob in a pr- group like this ends up then becoming a huge catalyst for everyone else in that group whose health is pretty well, who hasn't mm-hmm. lost anyone to an, a major illness recently. Um, and that's part of where the group um, story becomes really critical is it, everyone brings something that inspires storytelling in, in the rest of the group. But um, when we get people uh, who are facing a life-threatening illness like Rob, and it doesn't happen to every group, but it happens more often than not, uh, that can become an essential part of taking people to places they wouldn't go otherwise. It makes it real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting, and Rob, I'm, I'm very grateful to you. I'm, I'm just reflecting. So, having been in the Cancer Help Program uh, and seen and having been in, in Scott's uh, program, um, if you were designing the Cancer Help Program to be better than it is, would you introduce mirroring as a conscious dimension of the program? I think there's a place for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Commonweal Cancer Help Program stands powerfully as it is, mm-hmm. but I think that there there is some added dimension. I mean, at the Cancer Help Program, I felt seen and held mm-hmm. without mirroring. I don't know if that is a common experience among everybody. Maybe it is. Maybe it is already. Maybe you don't need mirroring. But there's nothing like sitting across from Scott and Meredith in council and Mm -hmm. telling your story and then having them with love and compassion not only reflect what they heard but what it associates with them, what they see in deeper ways about you. That, That 
you know, and it, it really snuck up on me in the desert. I really had no idea that that would be among the most powerful, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways you can look at the 10 day experiences boiling down to that 20 minutes where you tell your story and the 10 minutes where you get the feedback. Um, in some ways that's the, the very living heart mm -hmm. of it. Um, so I, I think maybe is probably the best answer that I can give. That's a wonderful, wonderful suggestion, which uh, I really want to reflect on. And we're in the last five minutes of the conversation now, uh, Scott. Um, so two things I'd like to ask you about. The first is um, one of the realities of the Cancer Help Program is that the dynamics of the groups differ significantly, depending on who shows up. Sure. And, um, and um, sometimes that process is easy, and sometimes it's more challenging for whatever reasons in terms of who, who's there. Um, I'm wondering what your experience is uh, with your desert programs in terms of the impact of group dynamics on both individual and collective outcomes. And I guess I'm specifically wondering whether it, it sounds to me, and I could be really wrong about this, but it sounds to me as though your process might be more impervious to challenging group dynamics than the one that we have. I'm not sure of that. Um, um, my theory would be that you have a system whereby you send folks out on their own. For one thing, they're out on their own for half the day. So right, right there, That's uh, right. you know. That's and exactly then right. people come back and they tell your stories, their stories and you mirror back to them their stories. Yeah. So it seems to me that there is less opportunity for the rich and wonderful human complexity <laughs> of group dynamics to be as challenging as it is in an environment where we do a support group in the morning, which is all about both individual and group dynamics, yeah. and then evening programs, which are somewhat more didactic. But I'm just curious, what's your experience with group dynamics, and do you have a sense that the method buffers? Um, absolutely. And actually, one of the dimensions I was thinking about as Rob was talking is there's another element of the mirroring that we count on deeply when we're out in the desert, and it's the mirroring from the desert. Um, the spaciousness and the way in which people are held. And I don't want to pretend like the natural world is always wonderful and sweet and kind, because sometimes it can be devastatingly difficult. Uh, where we go in March and Death Valley has some of the worst windstorms you've ever seen. <laughs> Um, but, as a general rule, um, people get, uh, invites people to enter that expansive inner place, um, particularly when they're given plenty of time to be on their own in that setting. Uh, and then the, the mirroring that we do um, calls out a higher, the higher self of people. And one of the things that we'll say over and over again with the group, uh, not over and over again, but certainly several times during a week, is Meredith and I in the desert hold the group, and then the group holds each other. Uh, and so the, the mirroring, maybe not in a formal storytelling kind of way, but certainly the container of being held and uh, through the course of your own inner journey of the week, um, is the group is a really essential part of that. 
Um, so we'll actually do the, the maybe a third or a quarter of the stories in the large group just before dinner, and then we'll send people into small groups um, for after dinner to, so that everyone's story gets told every day. And uh, everyone um, in the group has a chance to, to, in a small way maybe, but to mirror back the, the stories they hear. One of the other elements, though, that is really critical is when you do um, counsel, one of the fundamental rules of counsel is each, whoever holds the talking piece, and you don't even need to actually have a physical piece, but whoever's speaking is the only one who speaks, mm -hmm. and everyone else is deeply listening. Um, and so it's a way of teaching a group to do deep listening so that everyone really does feel like they're heard by the rest of the group. Doesn't take away group dynamics, and we've had some challenging situations with groups, but I'll be honest with you, the, challenge, the biggest challenges that we've had were typically with an individual person that was a challenge, and not so much the group dynamic, because um, most of the time, the desert holds the group, the group holds each other, and the group is part of uh, the healing that happens. Scott Everly. Rob Ferraro, Susan Braun, thank you all for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much. A real Thanks, pleasure. Man.